All right, welcome back to Formate Arbitration. I'm going to have a quick episode today, shouldn't be too long. I know every time I say that, it ends up being about two hours, but I'm only going to cover one topic. And for some reason, I'm getting this one topic from everybody right now. I don't know if this is another thing. I'm a conspiracy theorist. So I don't know if this is another thing that management's doing because they're angry as hell at us about these heat grievances, this training. Uh, but for some reason, this has come up uh, in too many districts. So I'm going to cover it today. It's about uh, getting medical certification for three days or less. I'm going to cover that today, okay, so we can fight that. Anything that comes up like that, a hot topic, if several regions are dealing with it, I think that that's coming from area or headquarters. So we'll stay ahead of it here, okay? So we'll talk about that uh, and just a few other things. Um, I had um, a few people send me some things this week, uh, and so I'll talk about uh, talk about it, my ideology, if you will, uh, because because uh, I had some people reach out concerned about some things. I'm going to talk about my ideology, what I think my ideology is. Okay, I don't really think about it that much, but I think that. Um, I think that my ideology comes from life experiences, how I was raised, obviously, how my mother taught us, as I told you many times as we were kids about uh, fighting for family, how my father was as a father to me, uh, his strength and his protection and those things. Uh, also in school, when I talk, talk about you know, making sure that I always had my friends back uh, no matter the circumstance, I talk about all the time on here, fight, no matter the adversary fight. Uh, that's things that have uh, been life experiences for me. The greatest life experience for me, though, was a near-death experience. And, and uh, this is not another one of my baseball stories. This actually happened. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not lying about this. Um, and, and I put the newspaper article. It's up on uh, From Aid Arbitration. Uh, the Facebook page from Made Arbitration, the newspaper article from my local newspaper that came and interviewed me is up on there. So you can see that I'm not fibbing on this, okay? <laughs> but uh, it was one, th it was uh, the greatest challenge of my life, and it almost cost me my life. Many years ago, uh, I went on vacation with my family, my, my ex-wife. We were still together then. It was many years ago. My kids, which are all grown now, were young. And we go to Daytona Beach, Florida. And when we get there on the news, they, they continue to talk about these rip currents, rip tides. Uh, I didn't know much about them, never studied them, didn't pay much attention to the news. I just remember they said that in a single day, over 90 people had been rescued from these rip currents, rip tides. So be careful. So... One morning, my oldest child, my son Lane, he wants to go down to the ocean, right? And so my ex-wife and my uh, other two children stay in the room. And so I take Lane, we go down to the, to the ocean, and uh, he's just a few feet in the water, and I'm just kind of with him, you know, just watching him. And, and during this time... You know how you just look out over the, the ocean, over the water? 
you know, I see a, a man and his daughter. Now, she's probably about 12 or 13 years old. They're in a raft, in a little rubber raft, you know, that you use to, to go out there and sunbathe or whatever. They're in one of those, and I notice that they're getting pretty far out. Um, you know, not concerning, but uh, you just don't normally see people go that far out in the ocean. Uh, and a few minutes later, I look back, and they're way out. I mean, to the point where I'm like, they probably need to start, you know, rowing back in. <laughs> they, they look minuscule. They're, they're out there. And so I, I keep watching because I realize uh, they're in distress. Uh, they're trying to row with their arms, and they're not making any headway. And so um, I remember telling Lane, I said, hey, Lane, come, come up here, bud, with me. And uh, we're on the sand. We're no longer in the water. Because I'm thinking, you know, th this might turn right here. And sure enough, as soon as I'm thinking that, tell him to come up, the young girl jumps out of the raft trying to swim back to shore because they're getting so far out. I realized then they are in grave danger, grave danger. So I pull Lane all the way up, probably 20 or 30 feet up onto the sand. And uh, so I'm just standing there. The mother of the girl is 20 feet from me looking out. The dad jumps out of the raft trying to get to his daughter. The raft is gone. It is, there's no way humanly possible they can get to this raft. It is gone. So the man jumps out trying to get to his daughter. His daughter is going under, screaming. The mother starts screaming for help. Nobody's there but me. <laughs> I'm the only one there around, you know. And so I remember telling Lane, I remember it was years and years ago. I remember grabbing Lane by his shoulders and I said, Lane, Listen to me. No matter what you see, do not come into this water. Do you understand me? He's like, yes, sir. I said, Lane, I'm telling you. I said, no matter what you see, son, do not come into this water. You stand right here, okay? And he says, yes, sir. I turn around and I jump in the water and swim out. Now, I am not a great swimmer. Now, if I go to a swimming pool, I can swim back and forth be fine. I'm by no means a great swimmer, uh, probably average at best. <laughs> so the, the waves were real choppy. Uh, it was not a calm beach. It was, the waves were extremely choppy. And so I'm swimming out to try to get to this girl because I'm not going to have this mother watch her daughter drown. Okay, so I'd already put it into my mind that was not going to happen. So I jump into the water and I'm swimming out there and it takes me forever to get out to this girl. When I get out to the girl, I realize I am now in trouble because <laughs> I am winded and my arms and legs are starting to burn already. I grab this girl who's a, a you know, she's 12 or 13 year old girl. She's not a small child. She was a, a you know, maybe a teenager. I remember grabbing her around her waist and she grabs me by my neck and they always talk about, you know, the worst thing about helping somebody that's drowning is they're going to grab onto you because they're, you know, trying to save themselves. So she grabs me around the neck. I remember that. And I've got her one arm around her waist 
and I turn her sideways and I start with my left arm and my legs trying to, to get back to shore. I remember this, her screaming. She was screaming in my ear so much so that I had to stop and tell her to quit screaming. It was in, I mean, her lips were on my ear. She was screaming bloody murder uh, in my ear. And so I told her, I said, hey, you're going to have to stop screaming. I said, and you're going to have to help or we're not going to make it because she was just limp. So she starts kicking with her legs. We're not making any headway whatsoever because we're in that rip current. So I, with everything I've got, I'm kicking, you know, because I don't know about rip currents. You know, they always say swim parallel out of it and then you can just swim easily back in. I don't know that. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> I've never studied rip currents before. So we're fighting like hell to get back. And I am everything in me trying to get this girl to safety. Her mother's still up on the shore screaming, help. Nobody's around but me. You know, finally, finally, I get this girl back. I remember this. I get this girl close enough. I grab her by her butt. And I push her as hard as I possibly can with every, all the, what's ever left of me <laughs> strength wise, I grab her butt and I push her as hard as I can. And she comes up out of the water and lands up on her knees. So I realize she's okay. She's going to make it. I am done. I mean, spent it. If, if I had to stand up, I couldn't. I mean, I'm on my knees now. The waves are hitting me in the back. I am so exhausted. The waves are knocking me down into the water. My son's still standing there looking at me, and I look up and I smile at him, you know, to let him know, hey, I'm all right. I look back, and the man hasn't moved an inch. He is still out there screaming, sir, please come help me. Please come help me. The raft is like five miles away now. It is way out. He's not moved at all. None. The girl is screaming at her dad, the little child, screaming to her dad. And so I make a decision then to go back out, knowing I'm not going to make it, knowing that I won't make it to him. But I was not going to have this girl watch her dad drown if there's anything I could do. I'm in such bad shape, the girl begs me not to go back out. I remember that. She was saying, sir, take my hand, take my hand. And I just turn around. She screams at me, don't go back out, take my hand. This is the child now. The mother's still screaming. You know, she's got her daughter. She's like, sir, take my hand, take my hand. And I turn around to go back out. I'm done physically, I'm done. I just kind of ride the, the rip current out to the dad. And I grab him by his arm. And he again, he grabs a hold of my neck. And uh, he's crying. I mean sobbing. Because he knows he's, he's drowning. And so as soon as I get there and turn around, I realize I'm not making it back. I'm not going to make it back. So... We, we start back, and I remember asking him, can you touch the bottom? 
Can you at least get some relief? Because your legs are gone. Your arms are gone. If you could just stand for a second and, and get some kind of relief, couldn't do it. We were too deep. Because um, I'm thinking if I can at least stand and have my nose out of the water just to get some relief because the waves are so choppy, it's like trying to swim in a, a washing machine. It was waves coming here, coming here, coming here, and your back and your front, all this. It just beating you to death. This rip current just, you know, it's much stronger than I am. So I've got this man same way. I mean, my arms are burning so much that I can't feel them. My legs are gone. And so I said, can you touch the bottom? He goes down, no. And so I go down, can't touch the bottom. You know, eventually I do, but I, you know, I can't stand. And so, you know, you just start to pass out. You know, people's like, the worst thing to do is drown. It wasn't bad. I just started to pass out because I couldn't catch a breath. I could not breathe uh, because the waves, you know, and, and just your body, the exhaustion of it. And so I remember seeing Lane standing up there looking at me. And I'm like, God, please don't let my child see me drown. You know, if anything, don't let him see me drown. And it's at that time that that woman went and got Lane and took him in because they were right down the hall from us where we were staying. She took him up to my ex to, you know, to tell her what was going on. And I could see down the beach a vehicle, an emergency vehicle. They had those trucks, you know, the lifeguards drove those trucks. They're getting it coming down to us. I mean, moving. People have started to gather around now. And so I'm thinking, you'd always see these TV shows. You're like, well, if I drowned, you know, you see them bring people back. So I'm thinking, if I can last long enough to drown when they get here, <laughs> this is things you think about, you know. And uh, I got mad at myself. I remember getting mad at myself. I'm like, damn it, I've come down here on vacation. I'm going to die. I remember thinking that. I was mad at myself. I've still got this man. But on my arm, you know, still trying as little as I can do. And I realized then, if it was dry, if I was on concrete, I could not walk up to the beach. That's how bad a shape I was in. <laughs> if I was on the interstate, I could not physically walk to the beach. That's how gone I was. And so I go under, and I'm thinking, this is it, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to die. And uh, I've still got this man. And somehow, somehow, whether you believe or not, by the grace of God, I ended up on that beach. Nobody, nobody came out to us. Nobody came and rescued us. Somehow, we made it up onto the shore. I pass out. I mean, I remember getting up to the water to, you know, to the beach, my knees are in the sand and I just pass out on my back, just turn over, gone. The next thing I know is I'm up on that rescue vehicle. My ex is standing there. Uh, my kids are now down there. I remember Reed, my child, my middle son saying, is he going to die? You know, I remember him saying that, is my dad going to die? And, uh, I was out. I mean, gone. They had oxygen to my face. So I realized I survived it. 
I didn't die. <laughs> I'd survived. Uh, I was in bad shape. Uh, I remember going to the emergency room, and and they put the oxygen up my nose. You know, they had the mask on at first, and then they put the oxygen up my nose. Uh, and as soon as they put it up my nose, I came to. I, I was completely fine. As soon as they put it up my nose where that oxygen could get, just streamline into my brain, I sat up, started talking to everybody, asked what happened, how did I get back, you know, how did I make it up to the shore, because <laughs> I knew I was dead. And um, I remember the mother came in there she crying, she hugged me, thanking me. Uh, the little girl was there, she came up, hugged me, and thanked me, and um yeah, and so uh, in the most critical time in my life, I made the decision that um, that I would risk my life to try to to try to save those people. Um, I would think ideology, if if that was it, if I was to say ideology, it would be that that no matter the price, no matter the cost. You protect your people. Uh, I think that I've carried that with me when I was at the jail, kind of that same ideology, you know, that ride or die uh, ideology. You have your person's back no matter what. Um, I do remember the next day, though, I'm on the elevator. And my family, we're on the elevator, and that family gets on. And so I'm joking with them. I'm saying, hey, we need to get shirts. You know, we made it through the rip current of whatever year it was, Daytona Beach. They're laughing. The dad never said a word to me. He never said thank you, which he didn't have to do, but never said anything to me. I don't know whether it was out of embarrassment, or which he didn't have to be. I mean, that was a terrible situation. But he never said a word to me. You know, I got a picture with the mother and the daughter. I tried to find it, but I can't find it. Uh, maybe my mom has it. But I took a picture with them. I'm in between them with my arm around both of them um, after that. But uh, ideology, yeah. I think that if you said, Corey, what is your ideology? It is that. You fight no matter the adversary you fight. Uh, that was my biggest adversary in my life was the ocean. <laughs> it was that rip current. It was the waves. That was my biggest adversary in my lifetime. It, it almost took my life. Um, but I can look back and say that I passed that test. If it was a test, I passed that test. People always say, what would you do in that certain situation? I could have, I could have abandoned those people and took my son and went back up to the room and left that woman sitting there screaming. I could have, during the most critical time in their lives, left them and abandoned them. If we're going to talk about ideology, I could have done that. Uh, I would probably not, still to this day, not be able to live with myself if I know those two passed away and there's something I could have done. Um, I think that if you talk about ideology, I think that we should look in the mirror. What is our ideology? Is our ideology that one of which, hey, no matter the cost, I'm going to hang in there with my people and fight for them? Or is our ideology one of cowardice, one that says, hey, in the most critical time in our carrier's lives, I will abandon them? I think that I would want to have the ideology of, hey, at whatever the cost 
Whatever the cost, fight. Fight for your people. Um, I'm not, by no means my hero. You see heroes in the postal service all the time, running to burning buildings. That's a hero. Saving people out on the route. Those are heroes. I'm not a hero. You know, I just was met with a certain situation and just responded, you know, uh, could have cost me my life, but, uh, I, I think that most people would have done the same thing. Um, so when you talk about threats, voices, uh, ideology, things of that nature about being uh, divisive and all those things, I will, I will accept all of those things as being all of those things. I will say that I'm divisive. Uh, I told you my ideology. I am a voice because I expect everybody to be like that. I expect everybody, especially the NELC to be like that, to be of that ideology, one of I will no matter what, I will be there for you. I will protect you at all costs. I will fight for you no matter the adversary. No matter how big the adversary is, I'll be there with you. I will never, ever abandon you. So I will not take advice from anybody who in the most critical time in the city carrier's lives abandoned us. I won't do that. I will not take criticism from any individual like that. I will not be degraded, talked about, belittled by anybody who on the first sign of pressure, the first sign of stress, the first sign of controversy or whatever, abandoned their people. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to do it because that's not my makeup. I passed that test uh, when it came to me. The biggest adversary I ever had. And I met that motherfucker head on. Almost killed me. <laughs> Should have killed me because I'm by no means a swimmer. Should have killed me. But I can look back and say I passed that test. If you want to know a man's makeup, a woman's makeup, if you want to know their makeup, what do they do in the biggest test in their life? Do they meet it head on, no matter the cost, or do they tuck tail and run? That shows you character. Call me divisive all you want. I don't give a shit. I am a city letter carrier that expects the most from my union, and I always will. I am a city letter carrier who expects my union to be just like me, a fighter, no matter the cost. I expect the, the business agent's office to be the elite of the elite and to fight at the drop of a hat. I'm ready to boogie. That's what I expect from a business agent's office. From national, I expect y'all to put us behind y'all and say, hey, I'm here. I'm ready to fight. I'm going to prepare you to fight. And under no circumstance will I run. Under no circumstance will I quit. Under no circumstance will I ever abandon you. That's my word to the city letter carrier as Corey Walton. I will never abandon you. I promise you that. Thousands of people have reached out to me at all hours of the day. And I do everything humanly possible to help. You know why? Because I passed that test. I will be here 
<laughs> no matter the adversary. That's one of the main reasons I wanted to become an arbitration advocate, because in the most trying time of your life, I want to be there with you. I'm going to hold your hand and walk you into that room. If you want to pray, we'll pray together about it. If you don't pray, we're going to get in there and get funky anyway. The most trying times, the most critical time of your life, I want to be the one in that chair beside you, shred management to pieces. That's what I want. That's the reason I want to be an arbitration advocate is because I passed that test years and years ago. The test that challenged my makeup, that challenged my character, that challenged me more than any other test in my 53 years. So, you talk about ideology, that's my ideology. I believe that everybody at every level of this union should fight no matter the adversary. And I've said that in numerous episodes. No matter the circumstance you fight. No matter the, the adversary, station managers, supervisors, district managers, labor, all of them will get the same when, the, when they encounter me. It's live or die, and that's, that's my motto when I'm with them. I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to do that. Okay? So if you see somebody that's questioning ideology or somebody that wants to, to say things, first off, I don't take advice from people that have abandoned their people. <laughs> anybody. I don't take advice from anybody that's abandoned their people in the most critical time of this union other than our first contract, okay? So uh, I question individuals that uh, do that. I question individuals that go places and call women out of their names, uh, if you know what I'm talking about. I question those individuals. Uh, so if you want to step, be careful how you step to me, all right? Be careful how you step to me because I've passed that test years and years ago, baby. And I'm still here. Uh, I know what I do. And I'm completely comfortable with what I do. So if you abandon your people, you like to go places and call women out of their names, uh, and that's, the, that's your type of thing, question your ideology before you question mine, okay, my brother? So th that's for the people that reached out to me. I love y'all dearly. I do. All right? So ideology, that's me. Uh, there's some people that have reached out saying that management is refusing to give them the hero training. Okay. The hero training, uh, file 17 and 31 on that and ask for a cease and desist and that management furnish you that training. Some are winning the 17 and 31s. They're sending them back and the managers are saying, Hey, we don't have access to that. That's horseshit. They input the training. <laughs> They're the ones who input it. So if they input it, they can get it for you, okay? Continue to file the 17 to 31 to get this hero training. They're not wanting you to get it, period. They're not wanting you to have it, all right? So keep filing the 17 31 if you win it and they refuse to give it to you still, let's start adding some money on there, okay? Start adding some coinage on there and uh, we'll force them to give it to us. But they do not want us to have it, period. They don't want us to have it. Another thing that's coming up, 
and somebody reached out to me a couple of weeks ago about the the falsification of clock rings showing that uh, they're getting carriers out of the office in an hour. They're going in and falsifying that so that when they send those up, district will see that all the carriers are out in an hour when the carriers are actually still in the office. Y'all start looking for that nationwide because I've had a couple of other districts talk to me about that very same thing. So they're falsifying heat training, and now they're falsifying clock rings, okay, to make it look like your station is out in an hour. Uh, under this T-wrap, those are things they're going to be looking at. And so they're falsifying these uh, tax clock rings. And so when they're looking at these things, you know, wherever T-Rap is, when they're looking at these things, uh, they're going to see that tax rings that are, that are falsified, okay? So y'all take a look at y'all's tax clock rings. Make sure that management is not in there falsifying those as well. And we'll grieve that, okay? And if you need help with that, Email me, and I'll send you JB's email because <laughs> he deals with that all the time. Uh, he's already won several arbitrations on that. And so um, so that's something to watch out for, okay? Watch out for those things as well. Now, another thing that came up, management is forcing carriers to take annual when they get back early. Can't do that. Can't do that. We're guaranteed eight hours. Uh, I've got this one individual that says that they come in, they're about 45 minutes early. Uh, they're trying to stick the next day's mail. Manager tells they've been in the office too long, get off the clock. Uh, I can sit there on my stool for an hour. I'm guaranteed eight hours. So whatever y'all want me to do for that last 45 minutes, I'll do it. But one thing I won't do is get off the clock and take annual. I'm guaranteed eight hours. Uh, now, if they tell you to get off the clock, you got to do it, file a grievance. But uh, make sure we're filing grievances on that. We're guaranteed eight hours. I may have a, an episode on that coming up here, but somebody just reached out to me here recently about that. We're guaranteed eight hours, okay? If I come back and there's nothing to do and I'm an hour early, you can either 701 me, right? I'm going to sit on that stool for an hour and do nothing except look at my phone or whatever, but I'm guaranteed eight hours. If they're forcing you off the clock, saying that you've been on the clock too long, if they're forcing you off the clock and you've not made eight hours, grieve that, okay? Grieve that. I'll, I'll have an episode on that here coming up because that's, that's about the third person that sent me that, that they're doing that. Um, look, they're mad as hell <laughs> over this heat training. They are furious about this stuff. And all hell's breaking loose. They're not wanting to give us information. This person said that as soon as he requested all this uh, heat training, that they said that anybody calls in six going to bring in documentation. That's what I'm fixing to cover right here, and then I'll be done. Okay, so this ain't going to last an hour, hopefully. But uh, So I'm going to cover that about management telling you to bring in documentation for three days or less. Okay. We're going to cover that, and I'm going to cover that through arbitration decisions and show you what arbitrators are saying about it, okay? But they're, they're mad as hell. Y'all buckle up, okay? They're bitter. Uh, T-Rap didn't go their way. Let's stay focused on that, T-Rap people. A lot of concessions being given right now by our T-Rap people across this country. Don't do that to us, man. Don't do that to your people, please. Please don't do that, okay? But... 
Uh, I'm going to cover this documentation required for three days or less. Uh, if I call in for a single day and they're saying, hey, bring in documentation. If I call in for two days, bring in documentation. This gentleman sent me something. He said, hey, did that. Management told everybody you're bringing in documentation from now on. So it's arbitrary uh, what they're doing. Okay. They're saying everybody's going to bring in documentation uh, anytime you call in sick. All right. So I'm going to tell you. I've got five arbitration decisions that were sustained. We won. And I've got two that were denied to kind of show you the other side of it, okay? But it's going to have the issue statement for you, the document, the, the uh, ELM provision and the article provisions in there. Uh, it's going to have those in there. So you're, the issue statement is going to be right there for you. Uh, the remedy request is going to be right there for you. I'm going to read these to you. Uh, it's a lot of reading. I apologize. But you need to know how arbitrators feel. Uh, I always love to put arbitrator sites in my contentions. I know a lot of people say, don't do that. I do. I like it. So I'm going to do it. Now, arbitrator's decisions are for two, two reasons. Uh, I like them. As an advocate, they're for persuasive value. Arbitrators don't want to be alone. So you'll see in most arbitrator's decisions where they'll cite other arbitrators that have like opinions, okay? So you use arbitration decisions in arbitration for persuasive value. So after the testimony's done, we give our closing argument. And in our closing arguments, we'll have four or five arbitrator's decisions that we'll hand the arbitrator and we'll say, just like arbitrator so-and-so said, Mr. Arbitrator, this is what he said about this situation, blah, 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 almost identical to the situation we have here today. And that's how you use arbitrator's decisions in arbitration for persuasive value. I also love to just read arbitrator's decisions. Why? It's going to have the contract language in there for you. If you've ever wondered what they, if you're talking about three days or less, what's the contractual provisions, they'll have those in there for you. Most arguments from management will always be the same nationwide. They'll always be the same for the most part. So you kind of get a gauge of where management's going. Our arguments will be similar. Uh, and the remedy will also be in there. Okay, so that's the reason I love reading arbitrators' decisions, is that they're very educational. Now, some arbitrators are pro-management. You've got some that are pro-union. And then you've got some that are just in the middle. So when you get a pro-management, you can definitely tell they will overlook a lot of things. Uh, and, and I think I've got one here that I can show you, but... So let's get right to it and so that I'm not here all day long with y'all. I'm going to read five <coughs> decisions, okay? And these are five that were sustained. Jeremy's going to have these put up on the uh, website, all right? So to those that are saying that management has now come out and said everybody brings in documentation here every time you call in, here's how we're going to beat it, all right? The first one is C19250. C19250, and it's from arbitrator Brandon, arbitrator Brandon, okay? And it's got the issue statement. It says the issue. That's another reason I love it. It's because it's going to tell you the issue for you. If you're like, how do I even start th this grievance? It's got the issue. It says the issue. The party stipulated to the following issues. So here's your issue statement if you're wondering. Did the Postal Service violate the agreement, Article 19, and its associated manuals and handbooks, and specifically, Section 513.361 of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual, 
When we required the grievant to provide medical documentation to support an absence for December 29, 1995, and if so, what would be the appropriate remedy? Then it's got the pertinent provisions. It's got the ELM language in there for you, okay? And it states, for periods of absence of three days or less, supervisors may accept the employee's statement explaining the absence. Medical documentation or other acceptable evidence of incapacity for work is required only when the employee is on restricted sick leave, C521337, or when the supervisor deems documentation desirable for the protection of the interests of the Postal Service. And Section 513364 provides in relevant part, when an employees are required to submit medical documentation pursuant to these regulations, such documentation should be furnished by the employee's attending physician or other attending practitioner. The documentation should provide an explanation of the nature of the employee's illness or injury sufficient to indicate to management that the employee was or will be unable to perform his or her normal duties for the period of absence. Normally, medical statements such as under my care or receive treatment are not acceptable evidence of incapacitation to perform duties. Uh, also, you'll have Article 10 in here. Uh, later and and uh, we'll pull that out as well that'll not be in an issue statement as well article 10 they did not do it in this one but we will include article 10 and i'm just going to read their decisions okay i'm not going to read the whole thing uh, just the discussion part this one is conclusion uh, and that way i won't be reading to y'all all damn day but it will give you, it puts you in the mindset of the arbitrator, how they feel, how they think, things that they look at, okay? And that will help you when you're doing your contentions, uh, when you understand the arbitrator's mindset. So when I do contentions, uh, what, do I, what do I need to put in there? What did this arbitrator rely on? And those are huge things when you read arbitrator's decisions. This it says it's undisputed that under Section 513.36, the service retains to itself the right to require medical documentation of incapacitation for those employees claiming illness. The purpose of such documentation is clearly to make more difficult, if not preclude employees making false claims of injuries or illness to excuse absences for which they received paid sick leave. The retention and exercise of the right to require documentation is obviously in the best interest of the service to prevent to the extent possible fraudulent absences which not only are an expense on its budget but also an interference with efficient operations. The right to require medical documentation, while broad, is not without its limitations. Those limitations are stated in Section 513.361. For absences of three days or less, a supervisor may exercise some discretion in requiring medical documentation, but documentation may only be required, one, when the absent employee is on restricted sick leave, or two, when the supervisor deems documentation desirable for the protection of the interests of the Postal Service, and that's where 99% of ours are going to come from, okay? Because management rarely ever puts anybody on restricted sick leave anymore. So 99% of the things we're going to battle are number two. When the supervisor deems documentation desirable for the protection of the interest of the Postal Service. Most people say that's deems desirable, okay? The first limitation is clear. The last one is less so, 
but the first limitation gives meaning to the second. I love how arbitrators talk. But the first limitation gives meaning to the second. Obviously, it is within the service's best interest to prevent all absences based upon fraudulent claims of illness or injury. Thus, carried to its logical extension, the full effectuation of this policy would require medical documentation for all absences of whatever duration, and particularly where the illness or injury is not manifested by a measurable or observable symptom. But medical documentation in every instance is, a, is neither reasonable nor practical, and Section 513.361 implicitly recognizes this by setting the limitations already noted. Accordingly, in context, limiting the requirement of medical documentation to employees on restricted sick leave clearly suggests that the second limitation is intended to apply to circumstances where there is a reasonable basis for suspicion on the part of the supervisor or management personnel that an absence is not based upon a bona fide illness or injury. This view is in keeping with the award of arbitrator Mikrut Supra and an award of arbitrator Dobransky cited therein. It is undisputed that the grievant was not on restricted sick leave. He therefore did not meet the first condition for requirement of documentation under section 513.361. The record contains allusions by the grievance supervisor to the heavy workload experienced at the time of the grievance absence and to the fact that December 29th was a Friday before a Monday holiday. Reference to these considerations provides no defense, however. The existence of a heavy workload without more has no bearing on the validity of the claimed illness which the medical documentation would address. See the award of arbitrator Bernstein. The same may be said of an absence before a scheduled holiday, unless there is some history or prior experience with the absent employee indicating a prior absence or absences before a scheduled holiday. That was not shown to be the case here. The grievance supervisor testified that she could not recall whether she specifically inquired of the grievance the nature of his illness, nor could she specifically describe any factor or consideration not already mentioned above which caused her to suspect that the grievance claim of illness was not genuine. Under these circumstances, it is difficult to understand what reasonable purpose the requirement of medical documentation served. The reasonableness of the service's actions in this case constitutes an affirmative defense. No reasonable, logical, much less compelling reason has been shown by the service reflecting how its interests were served by forcing the agreement to provide medical documentation, establishing his incapacitation for work on December 29, 1995. Accordingly, the service's actions in requiring medical documentation of the agreement was unreasonable and unwarranted. Such actions must be considered as inconsistent with the provisions of Section 513.361 and the grievance must be sustained. Having sustained the grievance, the issue of the remedy must be addressed. In three of the cases cited by the Union, Supra, where an arbitrary and unreasonable request for medical documentation was found, and that's exactly what we're going to argue when management says, hey, from now on, because we're mad, anybody that calls in sick, no matter the length, you're going to have to bring in documentation. That's arbitrary, just like I stated earlier, okay? I'll read that again. In three of the cases cited by the union, super, where the, an arbitrary and 
unreasonable request for medical documentation was found, the Postal Service was required to pay the employee for the cost of doctor examination. In the fourth case cited, it appeared that the arbitrator would have required the service to pay for the doctor's examination, but for the admission of the employee in the case, unlike the grievance in the, in the instant case, that she would have gone to the doctor even absent the service's request for medical documentation because she needed treatment anyway. So she just bailed management out. Only the expense of $4 fee for the completion of the medical certification itself was granted there. The results reached in the cited cases are reasonable, equitable, and in my view, appropriate. As Arbitrator Stutt stated in his award, and that's the reason I say use them as persuasive value, these are decisions that the union put in to, def- to uh, support their decision, uh, support their position, okay? The results reached in the cited cases are reasonable, equitable, in my view, appropriate. As Arbitrator Stutt stated in his award, while the service is not ordinarily expected to bear the expense of the medical documentation referred to in 513.361, where, as here, an employee experiences unnecessary expense to satisfy an unreasonable requirement, it is only fair to reimburse the employee. It is accordingly concluded that the grievance is entitled to have his grievance sustained and to receive reimbursement for the cost of his doctor's examination of December 29, 1995. The greater difficulty in this case is deciding whether he is entitled to reimbursement for all the testing that followed from the doctor's examination. It is ironic that the service relies upon Arbitrator Stutz's award cited by the union to argue that it was not responsible for the expensive test ordered by the grievance doctor. Arbitrator Stutz ruled without further explanation that all the supervisor required was certification of incapacity to work, not a series of expensive testing procedures which may or may not have been related to DeNicola's illness. The absence of explanation is unfortunate, for logic suggests that the service is financially responsible for the doctor examination in such a case. It would also be responsible for any expense incidental to the examination that did not constitute treatment. It would appear only fair to reimburse the employee for any expense he would not have incurred except in satisfying the unreasonable requirement of the service. The service here has claimed it needed nothing more than a brief certification of the grievance incapacity. The service further claimed, as the supervisor testified, that the first medical certification submitted to it for the grievance December 29th absence was adequate for its purpose, since it contained the doctor's recommendation that the grievance remain home from work. No further testing was required. I find these claims troubling, because they appear to be in clear conflict with the service's own regulations. Specifically, ELM Section 513.364 states that the documentation should provide an explanation of the nature of the employee's illness or injury sufficient to indicate management that the employee is unable to perform his normal duties. Further, medical statements such as under my care or receive treatment are not acceptable evidence of incapacitation. Moreover, the wording of the sick leave challenge related to the grievance and presumably communicated to the grievance doctor by the grievance states that the medical certification must provide sufficient information to show the employee was incapacitated for the period of absence. Obviously, these regulations mandate not only a medical examination, but a specific medical explanation and judgment of incapacity. 
Yet the acceptable documentation submitted for the grievance December 29th contained neither a diagnosis or a statement of incapacity. It simply recommended he stay at home and defer to determination of the grievance status pending reevaluation after the results of the order test were known. The record contains little to explain the doctor's actions. The union did not call the grievance doctor to testify in this case regarding the basis of a determination to order the expensive x-rays and MRIs. And the Postal Service called no medical professional to testify regarding standard medical examinations for the existence of back pain and the determination of incapacity to work as a result of such back pain. MRIs and x-rays are normally regarded as diagnostic tools rather than treatment tools, although each might have certain uses in treatment. There was no evidence that any portion of the charges related to the grievance treatment and, in fact, there's no evidence that any particular treatment was undertaken as a result of the examination. Absent a job-related injury not claimed in this case, the service clearly would not be responsible for any expenses for treatment of the grievance ailment. Any such treatment would enter to the sole benefit of the grievance. On the state of the record before me, however, I must conclude that the grievance physician was relying upon the order test to help him diagnose the extent of the grievance work incapacity. Indeed, it was not until he had reviewed the results of these tests that the doctor submitted his January 5th conclusion concerning the etiology of the grievance back problem and released him for return to work. One may quarrel with the judgment of the grievance physician in ordering expensive tests for a young, uninsured patient complaining of back pain, but without specific claim of back injury. One suspects that simpler and less expensive office tests and examinations could have been conducted and would have been sufficient. Indeed, one further suspects that the grievance as an uninsured patient walked into the doctor's office with a back pain complaint, but without seeking a medical certification for working capacity, the expensive tests would not have been ordered. However, in considering the doctor's actions, one must recall that he had never before seen the grievance, was not aware of his medical history, and was unsure of the grievance's background and reliability. He was being asked to certify a job incapacity due to a back pain, a malady which has been the notorious excuse of malingering employees in numerous industries. Caution may have been the doctor's concern. To find under these circumstances that the doctor ordered unnecessary tests require me to reach a medical conclusion without the benefit on this record of competent medical opinion or medical evidence. It was the Postal Service which unreasonably required the grievance to undergo the medical examination. It was its contention that the expensive tests utilized were not necessary and that it was therefore not responsible for them. It was therefore the burden of the service to show that the expenses attended to that examination were necessary. This burden was never met. Considering all the above, I am unable to conclude on this record that the test ordered by the grievance doctor were not reasonably related to the determination of the grievance incapacity for work on December 29, 1985. I have already noted above my concurrence in the principle that the service must reimburse an employee for expenses incurred in satisfying unreasonable requirement inconsistent with its regulations. There is no logical reason for not extending that principle to all the grievance expenses related to his doctor's diagnostic examination for there was no evidence that the agreement would have incurred these expenses but for the services unreasonable request for medical certification an appropriate word reflecting the results is entered below and he he made the postal service pay every penny all the testing done everything 
And so when management comes out with these dumbass directives, they're angry. Okay? They're angry. Okay? From now on, anybody who calls in sick is going to bring in medical documentation. That's what this gentleman sent me. There's a good site for you. I know that's a lot of reading. You probably put half of you to sleep. But it will tell you the arbitrator's mindset. And that's critical when we're writing contentions, when we see management's position. So that's going to help you at the informal. That right there will help you at the formal. The B team can read that as well. It'll help them, and it'll definitely help an advocate because I just gave you a site right there. You don't have to look one up. And that's the longest one. The rest won't be near that long. I promise. That was that was way long. Man, that put me up almost to an hour. Now the next one is C04974. C04974. And this is arbitrator John McConnell. Arbitrator John McConnell. And I'm going to read his discussion. Award and opinion. Unfortunately, the incident giving rise to this arbitration seemed to be, have arisen as a result of personal antagonisms developed in the criticism of Mr. Eller for driving without his seatbelt. The diagnosis of Dr. Bowman that Mr. Eller was suffering from possible peptic ulcer disease certainly ties in closely with the reaction to criticism on Thursday giving rise to illness on Friday. On the other hand, it was perhaps not unreasonable for the postmaster to be irritated by Eller's rejection of criticism Thursday night and his assumed retaliation by refusing to come to work the next morning. In short, the emotional tension between Eller and his supervisor resulting from the incident Thursday night makes it difficult to evaluate the events of Friday as rational acts under the agreement or the employee and labor relations manual. And that's most of the time how, what we're going to fight. Somebody comes in, they get angry. Manager tells them to do something. They don't want to do it. Got to do it anyway. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit y'all with sick leave the next day. Well, the postmaster's already pissed. The carrier's pissed. I'm calling in sick tomorrow. Well, bring in documentation. It's only for one day. Bring in documentation. So this one right here will help you with that. And that happens all the time. Those are games that we played for years and years. Nevertheless, given Eller's record, which reveals no evidence of abuse of sick leave, and that's going to be critical, okay? The record which reveals no evidence of abuse of sick leave. There was no reason for the postmaster to suspect that Eller was not ill Friday morning because he came to the post office. As is often the case, individuals who are ill and should be in bed go out because of force of circumstances. A financial need which had to be met by cashing a paycheck is one such circumstance. One could enumerate other conditions which force a sick person to take chances. The postmaster is not a physician. And anytime, anytime we have medical restrictions and management tells us to violate those restrictions or else, I would have this, this decision. Numerous times over the last month, People have messaged me about management telling them to violate their restrictions. I would have this decision. The postmaster is not a physician. And that's what I always say. Always go by the doctor's restrictions. The management, management is not a physician. They're not doctors. They cannot force you to go over a medical doctor's restrictions. Never, ever go over a medical doctor's restrictions. If you got an eight-hour restriction, do not work 801, 
Okay. If you got nine hour restrictions, do not work nine hours in a click. It's nine hours. A medical doctor has given you that. I got on a rabbit trail. Sorry. Uh, where was I? The postmaster is not a physician. He could not make a determination that Mr. Eller was not ill merely by looking at him and knowing that he had walked from his home to the post office. That's beautiful language for everybody. The post office is not obligated to send every employee who claims to be ill to a post office doctor for a physical fitness examination. Such examinations are required only in unusual cases having to do with some real or alleged incapacity that needs to be verified in order to protect basic interest of the postal service. A one day's absence by an employee with no record of sick leave abuse would not justify a referral to a post office doctor any more than it justifies a demand for medical evidence. Man, that's beautiful. The written statement by Clerk Dwayne Smith, uncontested by the Postal Service and part of the grievance record, indicates that the postmaster was upset and angry. Had there been a record of unscheduled absence because of illness, a show of disapproval by the postmaster and request for documentation would have been justified. I find no evidence in this case, however, to support the postmaster's request for a doctor's certification. Now, here we go with Article 10, okay? So this will be in your issue statement as well. All right, so make sure you all writing this down. The wording of both the agreement, Article 10, Section 5E, and the ELM, Section 513.361, both of those will be in your issue statement, okay? Article 10, Section 5E, and ELM, Section 513.361. Both of those will be in your issue statement when it says, Did management violate Articles 10, Section 5E, and 19 via Section 513.361 of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual? Okay. Make a request for medical evidence a matter of judgment of the supervisor. He may accept an employee's own word for his illness or... When the supervisor deemed documentation desirable for the protection of the interests of the Postal Service, he may ask for a doctor's statement. The evidence in this case does not indicate any need to protect the interests of the Postal Service, and it seems to me the demand for medical evidence is not supported by the facts. Therefore, the grievance is sustained. The facts of the case do not support the postmaster's demand for medical evidence, the grievance should therefore be reimbursed for the amount of his doctor's visit. And that's what we will always ask for. Okay, we will always ask that as a remedy. The grievance should therefore be reimbursed for the amount of the doctor's visit. We want them paid. So if an idiot wants to come out on the workroom floor and say, from now on, everybody has to bring in documentation, I'll bankrupt him. Every carrier, go get medical documentation. Tell me how much you, you spent, your copay. How much mileage? I'm going to request mileage because I wouldn't have gone uh, if not for that. I'm going to request mileage. I'm going to request reimbursement from the doctor's visit. If they send me to do tests, I'm going to seek reimbursement for that. And here's you some sites right here that are going to support that position. Okay. All right. Here's the third one. It's C number 04436. C04436. And this is uh, arbitrator Foster. Okay, and I'm going to read his discussion. I just think it helps. I, I love reading them. I'm corny like that. Discussion and opinion. In the view of the fact that the grievance was not on the restricted sick leave list and the absence for which he was required to support by medical documentation was less than three days, 
The only applicable provision of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual that would justify the documentation request is the last phrase appearing in paragraph 513.36. When the supervisor deems documentation desirable for the protection of the interests of the Postal Service, and like I said, that's going to be 99% of ours, is that right there. And JB did a very good episode on Deems Desirable. One of my most downloaded episodes was his Deems Desirable episode. Okay, and so I would I would look at that if management says that they deemed it desirable to bring documentation. This and other arbitrators have consistently interpreted that quoted language as vesting in management a range of discretionary authority to decide when the documentation shall be required that may not be abused by its exercise when there is no objective factual basis for believing that the alleged illness is not genuine. Each case must be judged on its particular facts. Before the circumstances that are truly relevant to this question are considered, it should be noted that the evidence relating to the grievance attempt to call in to report his illness on the morning in question has no bearing on the issue involved here. In the first place, it is probable that the grievance did make an effort to call that was frustrated by the alarm system connected to the phone line on which calls are expected to be made had not been turned off. In any event, the supervisor, whose state of mind is critical, testified that the grievance failed to report his absence was not a factor in his decision to require the documentation. Moreover, the fact that grievance could not be reached at home by phone is equally irrelevant because employees are not required to have home telephones. <laughs> I like, I like. Moreover, the fact that the agreement cannot be reached at home by phone is equally irrelevant because employees are not required to have home telephones. <laughs> I like that shit right there, man. I love arbitrators sometimes. This leaves for consideration whether the factors expressly stated by the supervisor as the reason for his decision to require the documentation were sufficient to engender in the mind of a reasonable person a substantial doubt or suspicion that the grievance reason for his absence was other than his alleged sickness. While the supervisor stated that his suspicion was aroused by the grievance denied request to be off on the day of his absence, upon reflection, the supervisor testified that he was not clear as to why he thought the grievance had asked for leave. While the absence of a leave request form could be explained on the basis that it had been returned to the grievance upon its denial, the supervisor's recollection that the grievance appeared to be sick on the day before his absence strongly suggests that if a request was made, it was for sick leave based on grievance's genuine belief that he would not be to work the next day. This observation by the supervisor of the grievance's apparent physical condition should have at least militated against any suspicion that grievance was feigning illness when he did not report to work the next day. The only other factor expressed by the supervisor was his thought that the grievance did not like the route to which he was assigned on the day of his absence. But this subjective thought on the part of the supervisor is not supported by any concrete objective evidence, either at the time or by grievance past conduct. That would indicate that the grievance was so motivated to stay away from work. When grievance past record of good attendance, with no indication that he was the type of employee who abused sick leave, that's going to be big for us, is considered along with the indication of his sickness on the day before his absence, there was no justifiable circumstances for the supervisor to doubt grievance assertion that his absence was due to illness. Accordingly, it must be concluded that the supervisor 
abused his discretion in requiring grievant to produce medical documentation as a condition to approving sick leave. While it is true that the grievant received an apparent benefit by going to the doctor who then prescribed needed medical treatment, and as it turned out, grievant was absent for more than three days thereafter, that would have given management the right to require the documentation. The appropriate remedy must be based on the circumstances at the time of the grieved event that occurred on the Monday when grievant returned to work. Grievant must therefore be made whole by reimbursement for the cost of his involuntary visit to the doctor. The purchase of the prescription drugs, however, was not required of grievant by management and therefore compensation for this expenditure is not an appropriate remedy. <clears throat> After careful consideration of the evidence and arguments of the parties and based on the reasons set out above, the award is that the employer violated the national agreement and the Employee and Labor Relations Manual incorporated therein by reference, by requiring grievance to submit a medical certification supporting his absence. The remedy is that the grievance shall be reimbursed by the Postal Service the amount of $18 that he was required to spend for the visit to the doctor. And so there's you another one. That's number three of five. I know this is probably boring, but it's going to give y'all the mindset, like I said, and so that when y'all grieve these things, anticipate management's arguments, there are probably going to be some of these. All right, you're going to be very well equipped. Pull these off of formatearbitration.com. Jeremy put these on there. Pull these off of there and read them. That's what I do. That's why all the time I read arbitrators' decisions. I'm boring as hell, like I said, but these will help you. Arbitrators' decisions, if you want to be an expert, this is the work you got to put in. All right. This is a very short decision on this one. This is uh, C04195, C04195. <clears throat> this is Arbitrator Carraway. All right, and here's his decision. Section 513.361 of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual gives the supervisor a broad discretion as to whether he should require documentation where the employee will be out of sick for a period of three days or less. This is the situation when the employee is not on the restricted sick leave. But this right of the supervisor cannot be exercised in an arbitrary and capricious manner. Now, arbitrary and capricious. Anytime management makes a decision, anytime they come out on the workroom floor and they give a directive that you are going to do something or quit doing something, always remember to put into your contentions that management's actions here were arbitrary and capricious. Okay. That's as good as contract language sometimes. Management's actions here were arbitrary and capricious. Arbitrators will acknowledge that as somewhat contractual language. When they say, what provision is it? There is no provision. Management's actions here were arbitrary and capricious. They just came out and said that, just like what we're talking about here. When management came out and said, hey, from now on, because they're angry, from now on, anybody calls in six, bring in documentation. That's being arbitrary and capricious, Okay. And so that's just something for you, arbitrary and capricious. But this right of the supervisor cannot be exercised in an arbitrary and capricious manner. The arbitrator believes that the supervisor was arbitrary in the instant case. Review of Mr. Mosley's record for 1981 does not show a regular pattern of being sick on days before or after holidays or before or after scheduled days off. Of the nine contractual holidays, Mr. Mosley only requested sick leave in connection with two of those holidays, 
one being the Thanksgiving holiday, which is the subject of the instant grievance. Further, of the total of 104 sick leave days earned by an employee, Mr. Mr. Mosley had used 48 and a half. This certainly demonstrates the employee was not abusing his sick leave. There was no evidence by the Postal Service that Mr. Mosley was not, in fact, sick. Mr. Mosley described his symptoms and the reason why he was requested to go home and use sick leave. There was no evidence refuting his being sick. Mr. Mosley testified that he did not intend to go to a doctor, but intended to rest and use medication at home. This is a normal procedure and understandable on the part of an employee who desires to avoid incurring unnecessary medical expense. I'm going to read that again. I'm going to read that again. There was no evidence refuting his being sick. Mr. Mosley testified that he did not intend to go to a doctor, but intended to rest and use medication at home. This is a normal procedure and understandable on the part of an employee who desires to avoid incurring unnecessary medical expense. Mr. Mosley denied that he made the statement that he was going to the doctor anyway. Good. Regarding the alleged phone call received by Mr. Mosley, Mr. Mosley does not recall having received such a phone call. (laughs) In any event, the evidence does convince the arbitrator that Mr. Mosley was, in fact, sick and was justified in leaving the station. He simply could not work in his sick condition. Most persuasive that Mr. Mosley was not abusing his sick leave was the fact that after being out sick on Friday, November 27th and Saturday, November 28th, he was scheduled off on Sunday, November 29th. He then came to work on Monday, November 30th, which was between his Sunday scheduled day off and Tuesday when he had another scheduled day off. If Mr. Mosley intended to abuse his sick leave, he would have called in sick on Monday, November 30th, 1981. The union grievance is sustained. The Postal Service violated the national agreement by requiring Mr. Mosley produce medical documentation to cover his absence due to a sickness on Friday, November 27th and Saturday, November 28th. The Postal Service shall reimburse Mr. Mosley $30 for his medical expense. Number five, last one. C-30959, C-30959, and this is Arbitrator Rosen. And this is one where they required medical doctrine for somebody who has FMLA, which is a hot topic all the time, where somebody has FMLA and they call in and they say, bring in documentation. That's what, this is uh, one that the arbitrator is talking about here, is uh, when management required documentation for somebody who had FMLA. Here's this discussion. The union is the moving party in this contract interpretive enforcement controversy, mercy, (laughs) has the burden of persuasion to demonstrate with sufficiently reliable evidence of its position as supported by the agreement. As this arbitrator has previously stated in contract interpretation and enforcement actions, it is well-recognized principle of labor arbitration that clear and unambiguous collective bargaining agreement language is the best evidence of the party's intentions as to what they agreed upon. In such cases, the arbitrator must give the agreement words and or phrases their plain and common meaning in order to maintain the integrity of the party's agreement. Even if one party finds that result undesirable for whatever reason and or somehow contrary to its expectations. And that's my, one of my biggest things when I read the contract when we used to, when we first started these episodes, is the language of the contract, the meaning of words, 
when we say will rather than should or may, uh, those things, uh, this is what he's talking about here. It is likewise well recognized as a basic principle of contract interpretation that related provisions of an agreement are to be read as a whole in harmony with each other unless clearly stated therein in the contrary. In addition, it is generally recognized in labor arbitration that only in cases in which where the applicable provision language is silent, unclear, or ambiguous can extrinsic evidence, including past practice, if any, be relied upon to determine the party's intent. There is no dispute that under applicable detailed regulations on sick leave set forth in ELM Section 513, employees are required to provide medical documentation of sick leave more than three days or longer. Nor does either party argue that applicable agreement sick leave language of Article 10.5D is unclear and ambiguous. It provides for a period of absence of three days or less a supervisor may accept an employee's certification as reason for an absence. That agreement language does not provide specific circumstances under which a supervisor may require documentation for a sick leave absence. The record contains unrebutted testimony from Branch President Lurch which supported documentation that the local party since 1993 has specified the circumstances in which a supervisor may require documentation for sick leave and that management regularly reimbursed employees for expenses related thereto when documentation was requested under such circumstances. That evidence further reflects the fact that local parties included therein use of sick leave for FMLA after its enactment. Moreover, in the labor management meeting records in this record, which on their face shows they were prepared by management, the party's long-standing practice regarding those circumstances was reaffirmed twice in the last seven years and was specifically identified therein as an agreement. Thompson referred to the local agreement as the instrument which was relied upon in management seeking documentation from the agreement in that case for her absence on April 3rd and 13th and 14th. Nothing within the arrangement, whether treated as a local agreement or a past practice, is contrary to or violates the express terms of the national agreement. Therefore, by operation of Article 30, that arrangement governs the outcome of this case. As explained in the JCAM at 30, Article 30 of the National Agreement enables the local parties to negotiate over certain work rules and other terms and conditions of employment which are essentially not specifically addressed in the terms of the National Agreement. Nor can that past practice agreement be unilaterally nullified by management as it seeks in this case what should be in violation of Article 5. The JCAM at pages 5.1 through 5.4, I know this has nothing to do with you'll see where I'm going discuss a great length and detail the necessary elements for a valid binding past practice, which it notes, limit the employer's ability to take a unilateral action in contravention of Article 5. Those enumerated elements have been met by the union as reflected in this record. Those elements include clarity and cons- consistency, longevity and repetition, acceptability by employees, union and managerial supervisory officials, the underlying circumstances that gave a practice its true dimensions, as discussed below, and the significance to be attributed to a practice may possibly be affected by whether or not it's supported by mutuality. There is no question, based on the unrebutted testimony, that documents presented by local branch president Lurch, the practice agreement arose out of a need of both parties 
and affected employees to know with clarity those circumstances in which a supervisor may request documentation for sick leave of two days or less. Particularly in this case, that involves whether or not grievant had an obvious pattern of sick leave use warranting documentation. Now, here's one of the arguments that management always uses, and this arbitrator is fixing to get on them right here. So this is why I like this decision. By its very nature, the burden of persuasion establishing that pattern falls on management. In order to meet that burden, management relied primarily upon Thompson's testimony and grievance attendance record. However, although Thompson believed that the grievance use of sick leave and or FMLA constituted an obvious pattern under the local party's agreement, the evidence of support thereof is at best questionable and directly in conflict with Lurch's unrebutted testimony on the meaning of the phrase obvious pattern. <clears throat> in her written denial of the grievance, Thompson asserted grievance set or was setting a pattern of sick leave use by using a day here, a day there, every month, always around a non-scheduled day. Does that sound familiar? Grievant called in the last seven times around annual leave or non-scheduled days. Grievant has a long history of setting a pattern of calling in around non-scheduled days, holidays, and annual leave. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> That's management's biggest excuse. Hey, they're showing a pattern. They're always calling in around their non-scheduled day, around the weekend. He's fixing to address it. Nothing in the local party's agreement past practice defines an obvious pattern of sick leave use as tied to non-scheduled days, holidays, or annual leave. Statistically, because rotating days off, use of sick leave would occur an overwhelming majority of time next to those non-work days, making such an interpretation unreasonable on its face. Additionally, management cites in support of that pattern Grievance attendance records for the last three years. None of those records contains any supervisory remarks about grievance use of sick leave or FMLA use in any manner. And these, these are things that we always use in arbitration. If management states that the carrier is always calling in around their non-scheduled day. Okay, let's say that I've got a, a Sunday and a Thursday. Okay, if my day's off Thursday and Sunday. So, you've got Saturday and Monday covering that Sunday, okay, Saturday and Monday, and then you've got Friday and Wednesday on that Thursday. So, what day can I call in that won't be in conflict with that? Tuesday. That's the only day I can call in. If I've got Wednesday off, Sunday and Wednesday, that's Saturday and Monday, cover that, Tuesday and Thursday. So, Friday is the only day I can call in, <laughs> That's not in conjunction with a scheduled day off. And so management loves that argument. They think it looks great on the face. But when you break it down like that for an arbitrator, which is what we always do in arbitration, they're not dumb people. And he's picked up on it here. Thompson's reference to agreement having called in the last seven times around annual leave or non-scheduled days inaccurately represents the pertinent facts in this record. As noted above, Two of those seven instances in 2012 occurred after the date management requested documentation for grievance FMLA use of sick leave on April 2012. Therefore, those two post-April 2012 dates are irrelevant and cannot be relied upon as showing an obvious pattern as of the time in question. Lastly, there the record is unclear at best that Thompson, as she testified, received grievance call in to be off the day in question. There is strong conflicting evidence in this record 
Grievant, in fact, spoke to 204B Julie Sue, who requested the documentation. The 204B did not testify, nor is there any written explanation by her for her request and grievance provide the documentation. It is important to point out that it does not matter whether or not the management request for documentation referred to medical documentation or just documentation. The record is clear. Grievance said she told the 204B she was requesting FMLA for April 13th and 14th. In that context, the only relevant documentation was reasonably understood by Grievance to mean medical documentation from her attending physician regarding her FMLA. For the reasons stated above, management violated the local party's agreement binding past practice pertaining to National Agreement Article 10 and Article 5 by requesting Grievance provide documentation of her FMLA absence for April 13th and 14th and not reimbursing her for expenses she directly incurred in obtaining that documentation. Therefore, the grievance is sustained. Management shall reimburse grievance for those expenses, but specifically include the $25 for the doctor's office billing grievance for the statement she was under her doctor's care for those two April days and the applicable mileage rate for the miles grievance traveled to acquire the doctor's office statement and providing it to management. So there you have the arbitrator saying you're going to pay the mileage too, because if it wasn't for your directive, she would have been at home taking care of herself. But since you told her to go to the doctor, you're going to pay the mileage. And you're going to pay the doctor's visit. All right, so that's a beautiful decision. It's C30959, 30959, Arbitrator Rosen. We got the mileage and the doctor's visit. All right, so that's a great one for you there as well. All right, I'm going to read two denials. And uh, this will kind of show you where arbitrators are at as far as denials. And both of these are key cases. So the union said, hey, read these, and they're going to help you. They're key cases. And, and these will be up as well. C04209, and, and uh, these are denials. Okay, so we lost these. C04209, 04209, and uh, it's arbitrator Marks, Jr. And this is what he said. Letter Carrie Woodman, the grievant, was scheduled to report for work at the Avon Postal Station on 7.30 a.m. on May 23, 1983. His wife called in at 7.20 a.m. to report that he was sick. She was advised by the postmaster who received the call that Woodman would be required to present medical documentation for his absence. Woodman went to the doctor and obtained proof of this visit. He claims that such documentation should not be required in this case and seeks reimbursement for the cost of the doctor's visit his transportation costs, and administrative leave time for the visit. Article 10.5 of the National Agreement reads in pertinent part as follows. Section 5, sick leave. The employer agrees to continue the administration of the present sick leave program, which shall include the following specific items. E. For periods of absence of three days or less, a supervisor may accept an employee's certification as reason for an absence. Section 513.361, the Employee and Labor Relations Manual, reads as follows. 361, three days or less. For periods of absence of three days or less, supervisors may accept the employee's statement explaining the absence. Medical documentation or other acceptable evidence of incapacity for work is required only when the employee is on restricted sick leave, 513.36, or when the supervisor deems documentation desirable for the protection of the interests of the Postal Service. Woodman was not on restricted sick leave. He had, however, been subject to discussions with Postal Service supervision in connection with his attendance record, particularly in connection with reporting off sick on days con 
contiguous to his non-scheduled day. This included an official discussion on January 23, 1983, and, according to the postmaster, less formal discussions in June and September 1982. The day of absence, May 23, 1983, followed a non-scheduled day. The question of requiring medical documentation for sickness absences of three days or less has been the subject of many previous arbitration awards. <clears throat> Some of the ground covered in such awards requires recapitulation here. Article 10.5 states that the supervisor may accept an employee's certification for absence without requiring documentation. The wording of this provision leaves no doubt that there are circumstances under which such employee certification is insufficient and need not be accepted. The national agreement does not provide employees with the absolute right to absence of three days or less solely on their own substantiation in all cases. Section 513.361 is more specific. However, in stating that documentation or other evidence is required only, A, where the employee is on restricted sick leave, not equal here, or B, where the supervisor deems documentation desirable for the protection of the interests of the Postal Service, in this instance, it is the second condition on which the Postal Service relies for its action. Protection of the interests of the Postal Service is obviously nonspecific. The Employee and Labor Relations Manual obviously con contemplates some circumstances in which the Postal Service interests are involved with requiring an employee not to unrestricted sick leave to supply absence documentation for a brief illness. The union cited three arbitration cases in which arbitrators found that the Postal Service had improperly required such documentation. And he talks about them there. Sum summarizing broadly, these awards conclude that documentation may not be demanded simply as a means to avoid the use of restricted leave of the restricted list or disciplinary action, nor may be used without supporting factual background as to why it is being required. Thus, the incident involving Woodman must be examined against the circumstances involved. These are the, as follows. 1. The sick call was made 10 minutes before starting time, virtually a last-minute notification. 2. The absence was on a day following a non-scheduled day. The employee had been counseled previously about such absences. 3. The employee's record, as submitted by the Postal Service in Postal Service Exhibit No. 3, showed three previous occasions in the first four months of 1983 of sick leave absence surrounding non-scheduled days and no sick leave on any other occasion in the same period. The arbitrator finds that the supervisor, the postmaster in this instance, had a reasonable basis for protecting the interest of the Postal Service by asking the employee to verify his reason for absence. As it happens, according to the grievance testimony, his visit to the doctor helped a lot through the prescribing of medication. Thus, the fact that such a visit was required for verification did not cause an entirely needless expense for the employee. In sum, both the National Agreement and the Employee Labor Relations Manual provide some leeway to the Postal Service for documentation of brief illness absence. While this may not be abused, as other arbitrators have concluded, there is room for the exercise of sound judgment, and the arbitrator denied it. So there's one, a denial, and that should help you as well. It will tell you management's defense against us, okay? Lastly, damn it, it's an hour and 37 minutes. I thought I'd be out of here in an hour. <sighs> C04897. C04897 
And this is arbitrator Zuma, Nicholas Zuma, which is one of my favorites. I use his sites all the time, but we lost this one. And it's very brief. Findings and conclusion. Just two pages here, and then I'll be done. I'll be out of your hair. Finding and conclusions. Part 536.361, the Employee Labor Relations Manual provides, for periods of absence of three days or less, supervisors may accept the employee's statement explaining the absence. Medical documentation or other acceptable evidence of incapacity for work is required only when the employee is on restricted sick leave. See 513.36. Or when the supervisor deems documentation desirable for the protection of the interests of the Postal Service. Based on the evidence of record in this dispute, it is patently clear that the requirement that grievant bring in medical documentation to substantiate the two days of sick leave was warranted. Here is an employee whose expressed desire was to extend his vacation period with the addition of two days annual leave. After it was determined that operational needs prevented the granting of annual leave, grievant informed management that since his back was hurting, he would accomplish his desired purpose by taking sick leave. <laughs> Despite the pain in his back, Grievant did not seek medical treatment. Instead, he left for vacation in Albany, New York. Under these circumstances, despite the fact that he was not on restricted leave, Grievant's actions were su sufficiently suspect so as to warrant the supervisor's requirement that Grievant provide medical documentation. Moreover, Grievant was warned even before he called in sick that medical documentation would be required if he did so. Under these circumstances, it cannot be said that management abused his discretion or that Grievant was treated unfairly. And he denied the grievance. And I pulled that one only because a lot of times we deal with that very issue. Uh, I'm taking annual leave. Hey, I need a, you know two more days. Can't have them. You know, schedule's full already on those two days. Okay, I'm going to use sick leave. We deal with that a lot. It happens a lot. So there's a site for you. Uh, look at that one. We're probably not going to be successful on that. Uh, you might be. You might be. But that does happen a lot as shop stewards that have been around a long time. You know, we call it Plan B at my station. If they deny my annual leave, I'm going to use Plan B, sick leave. <laughs> so uh, that one will help you there because uh, sometimes Plan B does not work. And um, so there are some sites for you that will help you as far as management saying, being arbitrary and saying, hey, from now on, you're going to bring in documentation three days or less. Okay, medical documentation. You got your issue, what you're going to request, pull those sites, read them. I'd read the decision, the discussion to you, but not, you know, all of it. Uh, but that'll help you. Those will educate you and get you prepared to meet on those grievances. So that will help you at the informal, that will help you at the formal, the B team, and arbitration. Everybody is going to be helped out by that, those decisions, okay? Right. So there you have it. Uh, that's an episode that is 43 minutes long, and I thought it would be. So <laughs> I just can't get off of here, man. But uh, anyway, appreciate those of y'all who reached out to me this week about the ideology. Uh, there you have it, and that's my ideology. Um and I will vote for somebody who has that same ideology. I just believe that as a leader of this union, you should have that, uh, that makeup, that, uh, that character that uh, I'm going to fight for you. And every time you see me, you'll see me fighting. Uh, you'll never see me running and hiding and let other people do the fighting for me. 
Uh, I have never been that way. I will never be that way. And so don't challenge me on my ideology because that's it. I will never run and hide. Uh, so there you have it. <laughs> y'all have a fantastic rest of the week. Uh, I'll talk to y'all next Sunday. Uh, got a lot of other things that we're going to talk about, but that's just one thing that came up and I wanted to discuss that for you. All right. So y'all have a fantastic rest of the week and I'll talk to you next Sunday. All right. Bye.